Okay, the reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him, st- had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, Do not put the Lord God to your test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of your word and thank you for that passage that has spoken to your people over the centuries. And we pray that as we look at it afresh this morning that you might speak into our hearts and minds, that we might hear your voice that whatever it is we're wrestling with at the moment, we might resolve to put our trust and hope in you. So Holy Spirit, would you come, whisper words of comfort and words of challenge into our hearts and minds and souls this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to look at that passage through the lens of worship, because that's the sermon series that we're going through, looking at this whole subject of what does it mean to be a worshipper of God? What does it mean for you and I to encounter God, for us to engage in a relationship with Him? I think it was uh, just over 30 years ago, I was asked to be part of a mission team to Oxford University. Uh, Nigel Lee was the main missioner, and a number of us were attached to different colleges. It was the only way that I could get into Oxford University, was to actually go and do a mission there. And I was assigned to Pembroke College. If you know Oxford, uh, Pembroke College is just next to St. Aldate's, a church very like this one, and uh, just opposite Christchurch College. And Pembroke College, uh, the the, the master was uh, Roger Bannister, who ran the four-minute mile. I had to preach uh, to him, not just to him, but he was in chapel when I preached on the Sunday evening, and then have uh, one of the most remarkable dinners uh, of uh, my life when I sat on the senior table with all the dons of Pembroke Chapel. And all I can remember just is that we drank a lot of port. Um, And I'm not sure about my witness that evening, but it was fairly memorable as a night. Um, But they they showed me to the guest room where I was going to live for the week. 
And I thought, oh, it'll be, you know, it'll be okay, it'll be a guest room. And I walked in, and yeah, there was the bed, and there was a chair, and there was the desk. And I thought, I could cope with this. I looked out on Christ Church College and St. Aldate's. I thought, it's not a bad, not a bad gig for the week. I think I can cope. And then I went over to the desk and the chair, and there was a plaque on the desk. And what I read on the plaque meant that I looked at that room in a completely different way. Because the plaque simply said, this was where J.R.R. Tolkien sat and wrote the Lord of the Rings. So I then looked around this room and thought, okay, this is a very different place. This is the place, this is the place where Tolkien sat and wrote the Lord of the Rings. And I looked at that place in a completely different way. Now, if you've read the Lord of the Rings, if you've seen one of the films that went on and on and on, and I don't know about you, but the third one, I think it had four endings. I think there were four occasions when I sort of, it came to a conclusion, and I got up from my, oh, we're still going again. All right, we're off again. And four times it happened that it nearly finished. But that symbol of power in the Lord of the Rings is the ring itself, the ring of power that Sauron has, and it's the whole epic tale of whether the ring will get back to be thrown into the fire, and what happens to the people who engage with the ring. Another writer described the, the ring in the Lord of the Rings as a psychic amplifier. It, it takes those things which are deep within a person, and it amplifies them, it makes them bigger. Now, the reality is that all of us have what we might call psychic amplifiers in our lives. Things that we call consciously or subconsciously our precious. It might be money. It might be success. It might be reputation. It might be our family. It might be physical fitness. Maybe not. It might be our friendship group. It might be our image. It might be the pursuit of happiness or academic excellence. It might be things like acceptance or love or even power or status. Things that may be good in themselves, but which also have the power to corrupt us, to draw out the worst in us, those psychic amplifiers. Things made louder or bigger that actually reveal what we think is truly important. What we really think matters or things that we are aspiring to. In other words, what are our idols? Things that we devote our time and energy to. Those are, if you like, our Idols. Now, you may think, I don't have an idol. Do you know that the average person touches their smartphone 2,617 times a day? A heavy user, makes it sound like drugs, interesting comparison, but a heavy user of a smartphone, probably somebody under the age of 25, 
uses their phones 5,400 and, well, they touch their phones 5,427 times a day. Those of you who are over the age of 50 like me can go, no, 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 no. I would just challenge you to have a meal with somebody under the age of 25. When we have our kids and their friends around, it is sobering and salutary to see how many of them almost seem unwilling to go through a meal without at various points just touching, just touching, just checking as to what is happening on their phone. Someone said it's the equivalent of repeatedly going to the front door and opening it to see if someone's there. That's what's actually happening. When you're checking your phone, you are physically going to the door almost and opening it to see if somebody is there. Imagine doing that 5,427 times a day. As we worship our idols, pursuing them sometimes to the detriment of other people and often ourselves, we inevitably suffer what Tim Keller calls cosmic disillusionment. This realization that the thing that we are aspiring to, the thing that we are pursuing, the thing that we are longing for, the thing that we are devoting our energy to go after, actually doesn't fill the void. It doesn't fill that sense deep within us for what we're looking for, for hope, for satisfaction, for fulfillment. Because as human beings, we are made to worship, but ultimately it's only in worshiping God that we find fulfillment and purpose. It was really helpful last week when Leslie Penny came and spoke at all three services that she reminded us that we don't make people worshippers when they come into a building like this. Okay, so worship doesn't happen when we come into a building like this. The reality is that all of us, whether we spend time in a building like this or not, are worshippers. And the simple question is, what are we worshipping? The reality is that most, if not everybody, out with this building this morning is worshipping. But they're probably not worshipping, hopefully, what we're worshipping. They might be, but the likelihood is that they're not. What does happen when we come into a building like this is that we consciously remind ourselves that we are coming into the presence of God. We don't, and we catch ourselves sometimes, those of us who are leading services, whether it's Paul or Libby or me or, or Mark or, or somebody else at the front, we catch ourselves saying something like, and so we enter into the presence of God. When we begin a service or when we begin a time of worship, But of course, that's not actually true, because we are always in the presence of God. The more important question is whether we are conscious that we are in the presence of God. Because we are as much in the presence of God at 10 o'clock on a Tuesday morning as we might feel at 4 minutes to 12 on a Sunday morning. If you think where you will be at 10 o'clock this Tuesday morning, just think where you'll be. You might be in an office. 
You might be in a school. You might be in a classroom. You might be in a hospital. You might be in a car. You might be on a plane. You might be on a train. Probably not if the storm continues. But the reality is that you are as much in the presence of God then as you are now. You are no more in the presence of God here than you are at 10 o'clock on a Tuesday morning. The question is, do you and I realize that? Are we conscious of the presence of God? And worship occurs when we realize and remind each other that we are in the presence of God. People out with a church building are already worshiping. But the reality is that they're worshiping different things. We saw at the start of this sermon series that worship was the reason that God told Moses to go back to Egypt. Worship was the thing that Moses was told to declare to Pharaoh those eight or nine times. Let my people go so that they might be free? No. So that they might no longer be slaves? No. So that they might no longer work in Egypt? No. Let my people go so that they might worship me. Worship was the reason for Moses going to Pharaoh. And we see it here in the temptations of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, where the three temptations that we're told about, I looked for a picture of Jesus in the wilderness. This is a very rugged-looking Ewan McGregor, <laughs> who three years ago did star in a production, a television production of Jesus in the wilderness. Um, so forgive the lack of historical uh, reality because Jesus did not, not look like a Scotsman from Perth or Creef. Okay, he, that's who Ewan McGregor is. Um, but he didn't look like that. But that was the best image that I could find of Jesus looking mean and moody. Um, for those of you who like Ewan McGregor, that's a freebie from me. Uh, just focus on the photograph uh, rather than my talk. But Jesus was led by the devil. He's led by, actually by the Holy Spirit in Luke's gospel, which is fascinating. Straight after the baptism, he's led by the Holy Spirit. He then returns in the power of the Holy Spirit from the temptations, but he's led by the Holy Spirit to this encounter with the devil in the wilderness. And the temptations are they can be looked at in different ways. It's often the reading that occurs in the liturgical year in the first Sunday in Lent in two weeks' time. But what I want to do this morning very quickly is, is look at it through the lens of worship and see how Jesus relates to the old nation state of Israel. Israel was chosen by God, not because they were more holy, religious, spiritual, or special, but Israel, just like the church, was chosen to be a visual aid to other people. So you and I are supposed to be a visual aid to other people. That if they want to know what God, it looks like for God to be involved in the lives of people, they can see it in you and me. That's quite sobering, isn't it? That they should see the difference that God makes in your life and my life. And that we are to be visual aids 
for what it means for God to be involved in the life of someone. And for the, the nation, the old nation state of Israel, they were chosen not because they were holy or religious or spiritual or special. They were chosen simply because God chose them. Just like we in the church are, according to Peter, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. We're holy and we're special, not because we are special, holy, spiritual, nicer, kinder, better people than anybody else, but because God has chosen us. It's because of who God is. And worship for the people of Israel was to be what's called a response of obedient faith to God's word and joyful reverence in his holy presence. And the question emerges when the temple is destroyed and the people of Israel are moved out into exile in Babylon. Will there ever be a true Israelite? Will there ever be a true Hebrew who will be a son of Yahweh, who will be the firstborn, who will worship God in the way that he should? And in the words of C.S. Lewis, the whole thing in the Old Testament narrows and narrows and narrows until it comes down to a little point, small as the point of a spear. And that point is a Jewish girl called Mary and her prayers. When the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and says, you are going to have a baby, you're going to have a son, the Spirit of the Most High will overshadow you. And the whole of the Old Testament is moving to that moment. And then the whole of the New Testament moves out from that moment, including and beginning with the first 11 verses, first 14 verses of Matthew's Gospel. Now, if you've got a Bible or a smartphone with a Bible app on it, if you flip back to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 16 is not a passage that many sermons are preached on. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 16, is actually full of deep theology. It's full of incredible symbolism. It's full of remarkable theology and history and story about the way that God can choose ordinary people, sinful people, men and women, because women are included in that line of Jesus back through Joseph, but it's not a sermon that you find preachers preaching very often. I asked the nine o'clock, and somebody could remember one sermon once being preached on that passage, the genealogy of Jesus, once in 35 years in this church. And she could remember it. But the only time I've ever heard these words read in a public setting was in a school assembly. And it was a school assembly where the head boy of the, t of the school that I went to, I was in, I think, about the fourth year, and the head boy was a, a boy called Bennington, Mark Bennington. And he was a committed Christian. And if it was your last day at school and you were the head boy, you could choose the Bible passage that was read in assembly that morning. And unbeknownst to me, because I wasn't a Christian at this stage, Mark Bennington had been trying the whole year to say these school assemblies are deadly dull. These school assemblies are putting the boys, because we were an all-boys school, it's putting the pupils off having a faith in Jesus Christ. It's putting people off believing in God. And he'd been 
going at it with the headmaster the whole of the school year. And the headmaster had just said, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. It came to Bennington's last day. And if you were the head boy, you could choose what Bible reading, what happened that morning. And so we gathered for assembly in the school hall that day in Manchester. And Bennington strode onto the stage after the first hymn. And he began, and he didn't read from the good news or the, the, the NIV like we've got this morning. He began with the King James. Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob. Jacob begat Judah. Judah, etc., etc. And it started in the first years down at the front. And the ripple began here and started to go backwards throughout the whole of the school assembly hall. By the time he got to so-and-so begat so-and-so, to so-and-so begat so-and-so, so the whole place was in, we were wetting ourselves. The headmaster was sitting on the stage behind a big desk while Bennington read the genealogy of Jesus out. At the end, Bennington said, this is the word of the Lord. And I can still remember that the whole of the school responding liturgically correctly, but with a slight air of wonder going, thanks be to God? Aye, what the heck is going on here? The headmaster stood up and said, Bennington, kindly leave the stage. And Bennington walked off and about 10 minutes later, made history by being the only head boy of that school who was expelled on his last morning. He didn't care. He got a place at Oxford, legitimately, academically, unlike me who had to go on a mission. He got a place. His future was, he was fine. But he wanted to make a point that these verses don't actually make much sense if they're not explained. Well, of course, what these verses are explaining is the whole history and family. It's like a sort of, who do you think you are for Jesus? It's the, who do you think you are episode for Jesus? Because it's tracing the family line of Jesus all the way back to Adam. And what Matthew is saying is, and it's no accident that Matthew says it, is that there are 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile, and 14 generations from the exile to the Messiah, that Jesus is the true Israelite, that he is the firstborn of Yahweh. He is the one who is able to worship as Israel was always intended to worship but hadn't done it. And Jesus is now the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And it's no accident that in Matthew's gospel, he repeatedly refers to fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. So Jesus, in Matthew's gospel, is born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, verse 14. He's born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, verses 2 and 4. He's a refugee in Egypt, Hosea chapter 1, verse 11. And now this testing and temptation in the wilderness has echoes of the people of Israel's testing in the wilderness. And it's striking that what Jesus does in refuting the temptations of Satan each time in the three that were told about, even though he would have been tempted and tested for the whole of the 40 days and 40 nights, what Jesus does each time in the three that we're told about is he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. 
And Deuteronomy is the book that tells the story of the tempting and the testing of the people of Israel in the wilderness. There's no coincidences going on here. It's quite deliberate what Matthew is recording. But there are three temptations, quickly. There's a temptation to doubt God's word, verses 2 and 4. So Jesus is extremely hungry. He's hungry because he's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. That term 40 days and 40 nights can be taken literally or it was like a sort of euphemism for a very, very long time. So what Matthew is telling us is that Jesus is really, really hungry. The devil comes to him and says, you're the son of God. You could turn these stones to bread. Jesus answered, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we have this incongruous situation where Jesus, the Son of God, even though God has provided manna and quail for Israel in the wilderness, he doesn't provide anything for his only son. But Jesus says, you don't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus refuses to turn away from receiving and fulfilling the word of God, of being obedient to what God has said. And that is central to being a worshiper. We've just reminded ourselves in that song, your promise still stands. You are our confidence, your faithfulness remains. And that's part of what it means to come and worship together. We're reminding each other who God is. We're reminding each other what God has said. We're reminding each other what God has done. And that's what happens when we gather together corporately. We're reminding that we can trust each other. We're reminding each other that we can trust in God's word. That's part of what it means to being a worshiper. The second temptation, verses 5 to 7, is to doubt the reality of God's presence. The devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it's written. And Satan quotes scripture to Jesus. He misuses it, but he quotes scripture to Jesus. If you are the son of God, and again, Satan, the enemy, the devil, will always try and doubt, help us to doubt our identity in who we are in God. If you are the Son of God. Throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command His angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And it's striking that the second temptation occurs with Jesus' feet on the temple. He's standing on the top of the temple, the very place where the Jewish people believed God's presence was. That's where God lived. That's where God revealed himself to his people. And the temptation that comes to Jesus is to doubt the presence of God. But to be a worshiper of God is to be aware of the reality of the presence of God. That's why we need to be as aware at 10 o'clock on Tuesday morning of the reality of the presence of God as we are at 12 minutes past 12 on a Sunday afternoon. Because we are as much in the presence of God at 10 o'clock on Tuesday morning as we are now. And the question is, are we aware of that? 
And the temptation comes to us to not be aware of the reality of the presence of God, just as the temptation for Jesus was to refuse to trust in God and to do what, if we're honest, we do. So the temptation for Jesus was to make God serve him. Throw yourself off the top of the temple and God will send his angels and they'll carry you down. What could be more dramatic than you to to enter into the temple courts carried down by angels, sort of angelic parachute with Jesus coming down into the center of Jewish life. I mean, that would really announce, nobody would be in any doubt as to who Jesus was if he'd sort of just come down having thrown himself off the top of the temple. But it was the reverse of what was supposed to happen. Jesus knew that to be a worshipper meant to surrender yourself to God. It's the same in prayer as we'll see in the next few weeks. Prayer is not about us getting God to do what we want. That's a childish response. If you're a parent of whatever age of child, you will know, like me, that it's the job of a parent, children think, to do what the children want. So children will make requests of parents. Those requests change over time. It might be, I want chocolate. Or if they're a teenager, I want a lift. Or if they're in their mid-twenties, I still want to lift. Those desires and those insistences and those urges and those requests change because of the age of the child, but they still think fundamentally that it's your job as the parent to do what the child wants. There's that awful moment when as part of becoming an adult you realize that the world does not revolve around you. And there's nothing sadder than witnessing an adult who still doesn't realize that. Well, there's actually a few things sadder than realizing and observing a Christian who doesn't realize yet that it isn't actually about what we want. That prayer is not about us persuading God to do what we want, but prayer is actually about us submitting to what God wants. That worship actually isn't about our preferences and what we like. We'll all have personal preferences about the style of worship and what helps us. That's that's, that's true, that's normal, but that's not actually what it's about because worship isn't fundamentally about us, it's about God. It's about what God wants, not what we want. So we can talk about didn't like the songs this morning that Mark chose, didn't like the preacher this morning. That's a whole different thing. But that's our personal preferences. That We're talking style. What worship and prayer are really all about is understanding who God is and that worship and prayer are fundamentally about us submitting to who God is and his will. And the third and final temptation 
is to very simply worship somebody or something other than God. Verses 8 to 11, the devil takes Jesus to the peak of a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And for Jesus here, the temptation is to end up at the same place because he is now king of kings and lord of lords. He has dominion over every power and principality and nation. He has the whole world literally in his hands. But the temptation for Jesus is to end up in this, at the same destination, but by a different route. To avoid the very thing that make it possible for your prayers and my prayers, for your worship and my worship, to be acceptable to God. The cross and the resurrection and the ascension. The temptation for Jesus is to avoid the cross, to avoid the suffering, to end up at the same place, but by a different means. We might have something that is good. We might have an ambition, a hope, a desire. But our psychic amplifier has the potential to corrupt it within us. For it to start to determine and dictate to us how we should live. Because elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul speaks about this thing inside each of us that Jesus didn't have called the sinful nature. Now, it was still possible if Jesus was fully human for Jesus to have given in to each of these temptations. He would not have been fully human if he could not have sinned. Jesus was fully human as well as fully divine. He could have sinned. He could have given in, but he didn't because he was fully divine. And the early church got themselves in all sorts of messes and heresies as they tried to get their heads around it. But the question for you and for, I is, for me is, will we worship God by surrendering to his will? Will we realize that the best way of not giving into, of resisting temptation and testing, is to recognize that we trust in God? That we're, putting, we're willing to put our wills and our resolves and our lives and our desires and our relationships and our hopes and our ambitions and say, God, I am willing to trust you because I recognize who you are. And that recognition of who God is, and that recognition of what God has done, and that recognition of what God has said, is what is right at the heart of worship. Maybe like me, when you were growing up, you read the book, The Little Prince, The Petit Prince, uh, by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. That's his name, apparently. Um, and he said this, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. The danger of having a sermon series on worship is that we get caught up in the mechanics and we get caught up in the dynamics of what worship is and what worship isn't. The best way to learn about worship is to remember the one that we're worshiping. Is to remember that it's only Jesus, only God, who is able to meet the deepest needs within every single human being. 
that everything that we amplify psychically will ultimately lead to that cosmic disillusionment, that sense of dissatisfaction. But it's only as we remember who God is and as we submit to Him that we can then live the lives that we were always meant to live. If you'd like to stand, we're going to respond together. And as we stand, let's pray. Father, thank you that you know everything about us. You know the real issues that some of us are wrestling with. For some of us, real issues of temptation where we are, even this morning, if, if we're honest with ourselves and with you, we are wrestling with something that has the potential to take away our trust in you. There's an issue in our life, there's an object, there's a person, there's a place, there's a hope, there's an ambition that once was good, but actually it's starting to corrupt us. It's starting to take over our lives. It's starting to take your place. And because we know that you love us, and because we know that you want what's best for us, we're asking for your help this morning. Thank you that you don't ask us to follow you in our own strength. But all the resources of eternity are available for us this morning. Thank you that that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us who believe in you. Thank you that the Christian faith is not a matter of pulling ourselves up by our bootlaces, but it's simply surrendering to you and to your will. So Holy Spirit, would you come and fill us this morning? Would you come and remind us as to who God is? Would you come and remind us this morning of the promises that you will not let us go, that you can be relied upon, that you can be trusted, and that you do not change, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Father, help us to submit to you this morning in joyful obedience as we were created to do so. In his name, amen.